This episode of Rewind of the Living Dead is brought to you by nightchannels.com, the only place on the internet to get that darker side for your t-shirts and hoodies. These are amazing, unique t-shirts and hoodie designs for occult, music, literature, and films. Of course, they got loads of amazing horror t-shirts. There's this Texas Chainsaw one that you gotta have. They got Alien, but they also got these deep cuts like Begotten. You know Begotten, right? Because you're a hardcore horror fan like I am. Or Guinea Pig. It's like that across the entire site for their music, for the anime, for other kind of media categories. Such cool designs that you're not going to find anywhere else. Go on there. There's no way you're not going to get a t-shirt or hoodie. I guarantee you. Tons of color options. The t-shirts have two fabric options. Classic 90s style, which is Gildan, or that great modern combed cotton Bella option. And the best part about all this, these are one-of-a-kind designs, and all of it has really great competitive prices. In fact, if you go there right now and you enter the code rewind at checkout, you get 13% off. That's right, 13% off at checkout if you let them know that Rewind of the Living Dead sent you. Uh, so when you're at the next convention or concert and someone asks, where'd you get that shirt? The only answer is at nightchannels.com and be sure to visit them on Instagram at nightchannels as well. Um, that's N-I-G-H-T channels.com uh, and be sure at checkout to enter the code rewind to get your 13% off. Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. Following the immense success and positive reception to Nightmare on Elm Street 3, New Line Cinema moved quickly to begin production on a fourth film in the franchise, and once again, producers reached out to original creator Wes Craven to see if he had an idea for the project. Craven's pitch involved time travel inside the dreams, and that just didn't jive with what the studio had in mind for the movie, so they moved on to other ideas instead. The final pitch that got the green light served as an extension of Dream Warriors, with this story taking place in a new world called the Dream Master, with many of the same characters returning for the fourth film. Unfortunately, Patricia Arquette declined to return as Kristen Parker, so her part had to be recast, while Dream Warriors stars Ken Sagos and Rodney Eastman both signed on to the sequel. A wide search was done for a new final girl in the franchise, and the part eventually went to Lisa Wilcox, who had previously starred in General Hospital, but hadn't done any major film work yet. Finnish-born Rennie Harlan signed on to direct the story, continuing to follow the characters from Dream Warriors into a whole new nightmare where Freddy Krueger is resurrected and looking for more souls to feast upon. Terror is. Hello. Do you live here? Nobody lives here. Real terror. How long has it been since you've been on Elm Street? Welcome to a brand new nightmare. He is the first in fear. Second to none. Don't let them put you to sleep. He has no mercy. And no equal. Now no one sleeps. Get ready. This August, your wildest dreams will come true. How sweet, fresh meat. 
A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. The Dream Master. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to try to dream about someplace fun and snack on some soul food as we review Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. I'm Patrick Guerra. And Patrick, we are continuing on our journey through the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise tonight, talking about part four, The Dream Master, which, if I'm not mistaken, is your favorite Nightmare on Elm Street? I would say that before we reviewed this podcast, it was the one I was the most familiar with outside of the first one. Um, and actually, Damon, it is the end of the line for ones I'm even familiar with, aside from Freddy versus Jason, which some will debate it's not a Freddy movie. Um, that's it. After this, I haven't seen any that I know of. So oh, wow. part five, A Dream Child, I have not seen. Freddy's Dead, I have not seen. Uh, New Nightmare, I have not seen. None of those. So this is kind of where where my journey with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street ends everything from this point on in our franchise will be brand new to me. I am genuinely curious to see your reaction or hear your reaction. When we talk about part five and Freddy's dead. Uh, Cause things are, <laughs> things are about to get real rough on this ride, Patrick. I'll be honest with you. Uh, and that's coming from a diehard die in the wool nightmare on Elm street fan. Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. That, but this one, honestly, um, it's the one I saw the most. So as a kid, this is the one that my cousins had uh, the, the VHS of, and we would play over and over and over again. So it's the one I'm most familiar with, but I had not visited it. In, I had not visited this movie in quite a long time, and I was happy to come back to it. It brought back a lot of great memories. This was, for anyone that's not as familiar with the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, part four was kind of the peak of this film you know it, it hit number one at the box office for several weeks in a row this was right around the time that freddy's nightmares got the green light for the tv show uh that we've talked about previously on the podcast uh this was when freddy mania was kind of at its peak in the world you know at this point when when dream master came out because dream warriors had been such a hit and then that came out in February of 1987. This came out in August of 1988, so about a year and a half later, uh, which is, you know, kind of a typical timeline for a lot of the horror franchises that era to put them out every year, year and a half. And by the time this came out in August of, of 1988, the, the fever pitch for Freddy was at an all-time high because these two films back-to-back both did extremely well at the box office. They were fairly well-reviewed. Fans loved it. It kind of reinvigorated the passion for Freddy. And as we talked about with the last episode with Nightmare on Elm Street 3, the Dream Warriors, uh, or just Dream Warriors, excuse me, uh, is that this was kind of the iteration, the beginning of what we know as Freddy Krueger. You know, we don't think of him as much in part one of just being kind of like the dream demon, you know, showing the glove and saying this is God. He was more scary, more of a terrifying character than part two. I'd rather not address that. And then part three is kind of where we get to where he's scary, but also kind of quippy, also kind of funny. Uh, you know, one-liners are all over the place. And I really, even though I've I've seen part four 
a million times. I would say part one, part three, and part four, I've seen far beyond any of the other Nightmare on Elm Street films, like not even close. Um, part three and part four in particular, because when I grew up, that was right in the key time when I was really getting into this franchise. Like right. I saw part one, I liked part one, but part three and part four, to me, almost felt like one movie because they were, you know, continuous care, you know, continuity between characters, all those kind of things. I'm not saying I never noticed this before, Patrick, but just to bring it up here, when I watched part four, and I, I get it, it was done, you know, on purpose. Part four is really a carbon copy of part three. They literally just remade the same movie, the same formula, and put it into a sequel. And I loved that they did that because they figured out what people wanted. They figured out what worked with audiences in part three, and then they redid it. They cast a whole bunch of likable characters. They brought back a couple people from the previous film. They kind of injected a new way of introducing Freddy to the world. And, and they also, in a way, in this film, got past the mythology of he's just trying to kill the Elm Street children. Because in this film, he basically says, I've gotten rid of all the Elm Street children. Kristen is the last one. Uh, now I just want more souls to feed upon. And so it kind of became an extension of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise where it was no longer just getting revenge against the people who burned him alive. It was now just about his thirst for more power, his thirst for more souls to feed upon. Yeah, I think it, as opposed to carbon copy, and, and it was interesting really sitting back. I actually got to watch this one twice, and I'm really glad I did. Um, and I've watched Dream Warriors multiple times over the over the last year, uh, and you you guys just probably heard our review on Dream Warriors. If not, go check that out. We were doing the whole franchise in order. Um, rather than say a carbon copy, what I would say is like, you know, bear in mind, Damon, this is... I think three times the budget of dreams, dream warriors. I think they did everything that a Freddy movie should do. They finally pulled off in this movie. That's, that's how I look at it. Well, I look at it like I was sort of waiting as an outsider. Cause you're, you, you have the Freddy, you're a, you're a dyed in the wool Freddy guy. I'm sort of just, you know, looking at it more as like a, a you know, with a critical eye and, and as, as somebody who just is, is sort of new to these movies, sort of. I uh, at going through each movie part one I go oh this is interesting man I'm seeing things I've never seen before that's great but like this was kind of missing and then part two oh this is a big diversion but he is scary part three oh he's not scary anymore now he's now he's funny uh but but the budget went like way down and it was it felt really I, I my biggest criticism of part three is actually that the fit and finish of the movie it, it looks and feels cheap overall now you got a movie it's three times the budget I think Dream Warriors was about four and a half. This is about 13. This movie is everything I ever wanted to see out of those three movies that I never got to see as an outsider. I understand. I understand what yeah. you're saying. And you're talking visually more, you know, visually more. I, than I mean, visually story wise. Um, I, I think um, the balance of Freddie being both quippy and scary his amount of time on screen i thought was was more appropriate the pacing the kill there was basically it was just kill scene new new scene that leads into a kill scene new scene that leads into a kill scene like the pacing of everything where the the previous three movies in my opinion and I, it's it sounds like a criticism it's just sort of like you know that i think i think the the franchise was like finding its footing and on this movie when you're given that big giant budget to work with it shows like they just literally were like, let's do all the things we ever intended to do with Freddy. Let's do them. And I thought the story was incredible because like you said, 
it does pat it, it does actually pick up from the dream warriors and leads into the dream master now remember when i was a kid <coughs> excuse me <clears throat> i'm sorry when i was a kid um i only ever saw this without having any context for dream warriors and i totally understood the story i totally understood how it was working i didn't need both movies to make this movie make sense right and so to me, I was like, man, they, they really knew how to strike a balance here, showing the old crew going on their way out. And then basically at the at the about the halfway point of the movie, a whole new crew takes over. And I was like, damn. And like and they pull it off, which was wild to me. I was like, they, this could have gone wrong. And it actually went really, really right. Yeah. And when I say carbon copy, I don't mean that in, in like a, it's exactly the same movie. I mean, the formula, you know, the formula is similar. And I think they did strike that in this one. I will agree. They gave you a lot more Freddy in this movie. And I think that again, goes back to two things. One, he is so sparingly, you know, really in part one, he is very minimally in there because he really yeah. is just kind of like the dream demon until the last big sequence between him and Nancy. He shows up a lot more in part two, but in weirder ways. And again, they bring him out into the real world, which is bizarre and all those kind of things. Um, part three, they gave the more quippy, funny Freddy. But again, you mentioned with budget constraints, there's only so much they can do with time, you know, with the, the, the effects and things like that. Part four, they really leaned into Freddy and they gave Freddy and, and Robert England a lot more scenery to chew on. Uh, which yeah. is good because that's what, you know, again, much like with Jason movies, much like with Michael Myers movies, you tune in to watch the the star and the star is ultimately the slasher is ultimately Michael Myers, ultimately Jason Voorhees is ultimately Freddy Krueger. And so they gave Robert Ingle a lot more scenery, a lot more scenery to chew on. And they gave him a lot more creativity in the kills and the way he was actually getting to his victims and, and, and kind of tormenting them and attacking them and all those kind of things. So those scenes got more elaborate, uh, deeper, you know, more involved. And as you mentioned, he gave him a whole new crop of characters to go after. Again, that's the one thing that I think is strikes such a similar balance with, um, dream warriors is because again, dream warriors right away, you meet this whole cast of new characters. The kids are in the psych ward, as I mentioned last episode, not to reharp on that, but kind of like these kids, all you, you all kind of like them, you all kind of sympathize with them, you understand them, and again, they're fairly likable characters. Same thing happens here, even just at the beginning when you pull into the school, you meet Kristen, of course, who is a different actress. We'll get to that in a little bit. You, of course, are reunited with um, Kincaid and Joey from Dream Warriors, which brings that similarity, that feeling of oh, this is the same group. The continuity is there. And then you meet all these new characters. You meet Alice, you meet Rick, her brother, you meet Dan, you meet, uh, you know, you meet uh, all the different characters, the friends that they're there with. And you just know it's being set up for these people to, you know, become, you know, tormented by Freddy Krueger. But they give you a lot of people to get with and they give you a lot of people to understand and like and kind of get into it. And one thing I really like about Dream, Dream much like Dream Warriors and Dream, again, I, I, I wrote these two films so closely together because I love them so much. In a lot of ways, mm -hmm. part three and part four are my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street films. As much as I love part one, part one feels like its own individual film. Part three and part four feel like they're part of the same story. And I love them so much because of that. I love that continuity. You could sit me down in the theater and just play part three and part four back to back, and I would be so incredibly happy because they do play so well together, even though they are slightly different casts and different directors and all these different things. But I love the way part four takes some time 
to get you to the Freddy part. Like they don't just throw you at him right away. Now, granted, you do get kind of a conclusion, so to speak, of Dream Warriors with, you know, Kincaid and uh, Joey and Kristen all kind of facing off with him. But they take enough time in that first 20 to 25 minutes to introduce you to all the other characters. So when they're gone, you don't feel like you're missing anything. You feel like you have moved on properly to the next group of characters. No, I really, this time around, put myself in the shoes of somebody who had never seen Dream Warriors to try and see a like, oh, did they bridge this gap good? Because, you know, like every now and then, like we'll talk about a sequel or a requel where um, we're, we're uh, you know, like we want to see if it's a standalone movie, if like you could come in totally cold and understand what's going on. And they do it really well here. Like they set up the Dream Warriors from the from the original film or from the, from from the previous film really well. They set up how how things with them work so so efficiently, so quickly. And then they show that like they're in trouble rather quickly and then they systematically pick them off. So I put myself in the shoes of somebody who didn't, who's, I was just pretending not to know what Dream Warriors was. Like, were they putting all the elements in place to make this movie make sense and to have a uh, successful transition from one group of kids to the next? They really did it. They really had a great balance in this movie. And uh, and it was like I love the bridge between now. Well, this is the, the the elephant in the room is Kristen has been recast uh, originally played by Patricia Arquette in Dream Warriors. They they use Tuesday night instead. She played Kristen in this movie. Now, for I think diehard fans of the, at the time who probably like much like yourself in love with Dream Warriors, they're like, whoa, that's not Kristen. That might be the biggest Achilles heel of the whole movie. However, they very wisely like have Kristen pass her powers to Alice and it made sense. And I was like, Oh, you know, and again, makes sense contextually for the time for the sensibility of the filmmaking, et cetera, et cetera. They do a good job going like, here's my powers. Now they're yours. Like you have to stop Freddie. And I was like, boom, we're in like now movie number two starts. It was great. Yeah. Let's let me just real quick. Let's talk about the Patricia Arquette of it all, because, again, we talked about that with the last movie that she you know, you get her, you get Lawrence Fishburne, you know, you get Heather Langenkamp coming back. And of course, Robert England, you really do have a bit of an all star cast for that movie. You know what I mean? Again, you don't know really what you're going to get. You know, you got a very young Lawrence Fishburne as Larry Fishburne and you got Patricia Arquette in one of her very first movie roles. You don't know that she's going to become, you know, an Oscar nominee, a winner, you know, all these, you, know, you don't know that going right. into it, but you see the potential. I want to read you a quote from 2017. Patricia Arquette actually addressed Never Elm Street uh, 4. Okay. And she said, Quote, unquote, they asked me to come back for four. But at that time, I was starting to break into kind of media roles. I had just done a movie of the week about teen pregnancy called Daddy. And I was really liking I was really liking getting deeper with my work. I love the horror genre and the Freddy franchise, but I was chomping at the bit to try other things as an actor, which, again, I totally understand. There's a lot of people who get their start in horror and move on to other things. Nothing wrong with that. But I and listen. I've read stories, you know, doing research about this. You've probably seen the same things that, you know, when they introduced Tuesday night, who is the actress who took over for Chris, it was not easy for her. It was a little, 
off-putting on the set. I know Ken Sagos and Rodney, Rodney Eastman who played Kincaid and Joey, not saying they like shunned her by any show. I'm not trying to make it sound bad. I'm just saying like, it was weird for them because they had, they had formed a bond with Patricia Arquette making part yeah. three. And then to come back and here's Kristen and they're like, Oh, Patricia Arquette's not coming back. We're going to introduce you to this new actress. It is off-putting. Now, this is not unusual by any stretch of the imagination and horror. People get recast all the time. This is, again, pretty common fare. And actually, Deborah Elm Street carrying on a story from part three to part four and eventually even into part five is kind of rare because even back then, like, you'd rarely see, you know, look at Friday the 13th. Yeah, they had We've a couple. We've talked about it on the show. Yeah. We wanted, we wanted, like, characters to cross over, and then they just were like, we're not going to recast. Yeah, and so... There's the downside of that. The good side is they they decided to keep the character and continue the story. I will say, and this is not a knock on on this is this is I I spoke to the greatness of Patricia Arquette, even though that was again I'm not gonna say that Number Nine Street Three was her strongest performance ever. She obviously became a world class actor, you know, as she learned and grew and became better. I love her and her romance. You know, that's a few years later, and that goes on down the line of all the things she's done done since then. Um, but I really liked her as Kristen. I liked that role. And when you do recast the lead, I mean, she was the lead of dream yeah. warriors. You know what I mean? You recast out a new actress. You're putting Tuesday night in an impossibly tough situation. Now I'm not going to sit here and lie to you, Patrick and say she was incredible in this movie because she wasn't. And part of it is because you are seeing again, it's the, it's any recasting in history. When you do this, you run the risk of alienating a little bit of your audience because they have a familiarity with a certain actor or actor, you know, in a role. And when you take them out of that, you're going to, you're immediately going to have people judging it based right away because you're not seeing the same face, you know, now, again, this is before the internet this is before Twitter this is before Instagram. So people weren't losing their minds over every little thing that happens in a movie. But Again, you're carrying it late, and this is a year and a half later. It's not like they did this five years later, and at that right. point, you know, uh, Patricia Arquette would have been too old to play a teenager or something crazy like that. Like, she just didn't do it. So you put Tuesday night in an impossibly tough situation, and then her performance, well, I wouldn't say it's... I don't, you know, I don't, we, we have kind of gone away. We used to do worse performance on this show. We don't do that anymore, and I'm not saying that about anybody in this film, but, like, she, you could tell that she was trying to live up to the role that was there before her and it's true and she struggles in my opinion she struggles to live up to that in this film whereas i think ken sagos and rodney rodney eastman step right back into their roles as kincaid and joey which is great and then i think lisa wilcox is one of my all-time favorite final girls she does a tremendous job you get andres jones as rick all the other characters the new people who come in they kind of take the roles for themselves Tuesday was in an impossible situation because she had to take over the role of Kristen, but she was also in some way emulating what Patricia Arquette had already done. I'm going to be really honest with you as an outsider. Again, like I had no skin in the game. I had not seen dream warriors at the time. And now again, I was, I was doing my best to sit there as an objective observer uh, this time around. I found the transition to be really easy to swallow. It was it, it was not that hard for me to just go, OK, this is Kristen now. Um, but again, I didn't have any emotional connection to Dream Warriors ahead of that. Um, and, you know, I didn't grow up on loving Patricia Arquette's Kristen, which I know a lot of people did. And that's fine. So it's almost like me going like if you recast Han Solo, which I know they did. But what I'm saying is like if they did it the way in this situation, like, oh, in Star Wars, this was Han Solo. And in, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Empire Strikes Back, we cast a new guys, Han Solo. 
everybody would be like, what the hell? But if you're like some guy who just showed up at the movies and is like, oh, I don't even know what Empire Strikes Back is. You'd be like, oh, okay, this works. This is, this guy's fine. That's how I felt. I was like, I think this version of Kristen works for me. And you know what was great too? And again, this is more on the story side. So I, I wasn't so so much as focused on the fact that she was recast. It was the execution, the again, the passing of the torch. What I love that they did is instead of Kristen herself, and maybe this was the producers and directors trying to figure it all out, make it work. Instead of her like explaining the past, they so smartly used her boyfriend, Rick. Rick told, uh, I believe it was Dan. He's like, yeah, she told me these stories of like being in an asylum and like her and all these other kids were in this dream thing. It's such natural teen conversation that's totally expository without feeling heavy handed. Like there's not a moment where everyone has to stand still while Kristen explains what happened in the asylum. Like that, that would be a bad version of this movie. The good version of this movie is in a normal situation where shit is hitting the fan. One guy goes, yeah, my girlfriend told me about this stuff that happened back in the day. Total natural trend, total natural exposition fit really well into this movie. And, and so, so for me as the outsider, I looked at it and went, they did all their homework again. Like I was saying in the beginning, they put their foot right every time. And I, I mean, I was like, I was like, damn, this movie's like really fucking because it's plot heavy. This is a plot heavy movie. They did it correctly. I think what is a little harder for the Dream Warriors fans going into Dream Master is, you know, again, I don't mind that they move on to the new cast of characters. I would actually say I really like the new cast of characters, honestly. Again, you know, we talked about Lisa Wilcox, Alice becoming one of the most infamous female uh, final girls in the entire franchise. Um, I loved that character. I loved Rick. I loved Dan. I loved everybody else as they introduced this movie. I was a little bummed at how quickly they kind of dispatched, you know, the characters from Dream Warriors. You kind of, when you kind of come to love a character and and the, and the people who survived that situation, it does feel a little off-putting when you just eliminate them within the first 30 minutes of the next movie. Like, there was a little bit of sadness there, but I also understood it because I think this film gets better weirdly when they move beyond Kristen. I think that's yes. really when this film picks up steam is when Kristen is gone and, and Alice becomes the central focus and the fallout from Kristen's death becomes kind of the central theme of this film with Freddie coming after everybody else who had no connection to him through the original murder, through people, the parents of Elm street, you know, hunting him down and burning him alive. At that point, it just becomes Freddie is out for more souls because that's what powers him. That's what fuels him. And I think Kristen's death in a weird way moves us into the second phase of this movie, the second act, so to speak. Yeah. And I liked it better. That's when the film got stronger, in my opinion. So as much as I was bummed that Kincaid and Joey kind of got dispatched early in this film, like they're gone, you know, fairly quickly. And then Kristen is the last one. Uh, I think the film got stronger beyond that. Again, I'm still sad because... We talked about the last one. I loved Ken Kate as a character. And to his credit, yeah. Ken Sagos gets a couple good one-liners in this film as well. It's good to see, you know, Rodney Eastman as Joey talking. You know, he's kind of got his life back now. And, it, you know, again, you kind of bum. Like, he just goes out. Uh, you know what I mean? So, I, again, this is it's one of those, like, I'm of two minds. Like, I'm bummed they went out so quickly. But I also think the film gets better beyond that. And you have to think that because they didn't get Patricia Arquette back, they basically, they probably rewrote the movie because I have a feeling if you'd have gotten her back, it would have been a different movie with a different story because they, it'd probably be even contractual. It'd be like, you're not killing me off. I'm not like, like, I doubt Patricia Arquette would have been like, you want me to sign on to a movie where I die halfway through? Mm, I'm okay. Like, I had a feeling if they would have 
had her, we dream dream master would be a different movie. Did so, you did you see the story in in researching this movie that they actually started filming Dream Master without a director? I'd heard something about. <laughs> I was reading that they were, they didn't want Rennie Harlan, which is crazy. Uh, he's very good, and uh, he he directs the shit out of this movie like really well. But yeah, I'd, I'd heard that they were sort of hesitant, like they were just kind of getting the ball rolling. Uh, which may explain later movies. <laughs> yeah, they maybe talked, that's kind of a new line cinema thing to do. Yeah, so they talked to one director uh, at, at the beginning of this, and they basically said, um, hold on, let me see if I can find the name here real quick. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see, where is that? Uh, hold on one second. I apologize, I'm reading anything here. Uh, so there was, I, I forget who it was. There was a director who was brought in, and he had asked for creative control. Uh, right. Tom McLaughlin was the name. That's who it was. He had done Fr- uh, Jason Lives Friday the Thirteenth Part Six, and they offered him the job on Dream Master. And the one caveat that he wanted was is he wanted creative control over the story. And they said, "Well, we can't really give you that because we've already started filming. Like we're already like into production <laughs> on some of the like sequences." And he's like, "What? You don't have a director, and you're already filming the movie?" Uh, and then he bowed out and they ended up getting Rennie Harlan, which for people that don't know who Rennie Harlan is, Rennie Harlan went on to do a lot of great movies. He actually did Die Hard 2, which is an incredible movie, a movie that's so vastly underrated and people, I know it's awful. It is an awful, amazing movie, but I love it. It's the film he did right after this when he did The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, which is Andrew Dice Clay. I <laughs> yeah. love that movie. That movie, I've always, seen it. that movie holds a special place in my heart. Uh, he also did uh, Deep Blue Sea. And for those of you that don't know, let me just go ahead and say this. A shark ate me. A shark fucking ate me. That's from the Chappelle show. But Deep Blue Sea, that was great. Uh, he's done a lot of good movies over the years. But yeah, yeah, like they got Rennie Harlan like early in his career, and he ends up being kind of like the I would say he wouldn't I wouldn't say last choice. He was just the guy who was willing to do it based on what they had already done. Like they brought him on. And they're like, hey, we already started filming this, and we already have a script, and like, yeah, casting's done. Like you're just going to be kind of stumping in to direct it, and he was willing to do it where other directors were like, ah, oh, no, thank you. Um, I but did a great job. He did. And Rennie Harlan went on to do great things. So, you know, it kind of worked out like a stroke of genius, kind of like almost like a, you know, a happy accident in a way it worked out. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of crazy. I actually started filming this movie before they even had a director. Yeah, to do, yeah, yeah, to do it. You know, I mean, we laugh, but you know, every Marvel movie is pre-visualized for the most part. Um, that's kind of how it goes. You know, like these big giant $250 million movies they, they've got most of it laid out already. They need the director who will execute it all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's again, you, there's different kinds of directors in Hollywood. There are the directors who are pure artists and they only want to do their kind of movie and their movie with their cast and their, you know, whatever. And then there's the directors who are willing to work with a studio. Cause remember, like you talk about Marvel, like Kevin Feige, the guy who runs Marvel, he's ultimately the guy who's making the movie. Like, I'm not saying he takes away your creative vision, but I'm saying like, he's going to come to you and say, Hey, this movie, we need this to happen. We need to end this way. We need to set up the next film and they have to be okay with it. Now they get to tinker and toy and play and have fun in how they get there, but they have to get there. And and again, Nightmare on Elm Street becoming a franchise, like any horror franchise, they have to set it up. They have to get to where they're going. Now, we're going to get into a little deeper talk about some of the weird moments in this film and some of the better moments in this film. We get into categories in just a second, but the one thing I want to, I know we're going to talk about this. I'm just kind of spoiler here, Patrick. I know we're going to talk about this again later in the categories, but I do want to bring this up because one thing I've always enjoyed kind of having fun with, with nightmare on Elm streets is how Freddie 
enters and how Freddie exits. And I know you had issues. You bumped up against how Freddie came into Dream Warriors or how Freddie went out in Dream Warriors with the whole consecrating the grave. I've had issues with Freddie coming in and out for the first three movies, period. They're, they're all strange. How he comes in and how he comes out have always been weird. Yeah, I again, I love part three, how he how he goes out. They don't really say anything, but he's just there. Like, I, you know, they don't really say how yeah. he returns. I have to say part four has one of the greatest Freddie exits. But one of the exit. weirdest Freddy intros. Because oh, you're going to take my what the fuck and blow it up right now? Well, I want to <laughs> talk about it because it's literally the like, who came up with this idea? Like, could you just not, who could you just not figure out how we resurrect Freddy and you have to come up with the weirdest idea ever? I don't even understand. It makes, and I did have this in my notes. I go, and maybe we won't get into like so much of it, but I'll tell you, it's so strange how he comes back in. It made me appreciate Friday the 13th because they make it so simple. Lightning strikes a grave. He's alive again. It was so easy. This is like, huh? And it's almost like, okay, help me out here because there's a lot of like, Freddie pulls people in to get things going. That's, that's kind of, I think the gist of how he, how he usually shows up is he pulls somebody back into the dream world. At least I think he pulled Kincaid and Jason, his dog, into uh, a the junkyard where his body is buried. Am I getting that wrong? No, that's where he was. Yeah. So so, Freddie pulls Kincaid into the actual graveyard where he's buried, but it's also a dream. Well, Am I getting that right? Okay, so kind of two things here. One, <laughs> and again, hard, this is this, okay. So I think. So two things to mention at the end of dream warriors, when Neil, like, Dr. Here's, Hill, can we just do one preface? Let's talk about all the things except for my, what the fuck element, yeah. just the one element. Okay. So in dream warriors, the end of the film, when Neil is going to sleep after, after Nancy has died and everything's happened with Freddie, she has the house that she had, that Kristen had built at the beginning of the movie. And then at the very end of the movie, a light comes on, which you immediately makes you think that Freddie's still alive. Right. Like right. they, they kind of get in the little doll house and they yes. do it again at the end of this one, when Alice looks into the wishing pool and she sees Freddie's reflection and then, you know, disappears. Yeah. So they're already giving you hints. He's coming back. My thought in part four, which is what, which is what Kincaid says to Kristen. Kristen keeps drawing herself back into the Freddie dream world convinced he's going to come back for them convinced he's not done with them convinced he's not dead and so she goes into the house she does this and then when she gets scared she pulls Kincaid and Joey into her dream and Ken, I think it's Kincaid who says something to her to the effect of if you keep coming back in here you're going to stir it up again my yeah. thought is and they use this really well later down the road in Freddy versus Jason which is Freddy is fueled by fear Freddie is fueled by the fear of the people, and that's his, he's the nightmare. You know, he's the, when you're scared of him, he gains power, he gains strength, and then he takes your soul, and it gives him even more strength. At least that's the way I'm uh, interpreting it. So my guess is, is Kristen continuously going back, and we see it at the beginning of the movie when the little girl is there and she pulls off her thing. You see Freddie, and she says, "No one lives here," and like she's stirring it up. Like she keeps going back. So my interpretation is that Kristen has gone back into that world so many times. And she's so terrified of it that Freddie has gained enough strength to reach out and do more damage. Is my that's the way I interpreted it as. Now maybe I'm over explaining it for the sake of trying to make sense of what didn't make sense, but that's the way I interpret it. She kept going back in 
And that basically allowed. And so when Kincaid says you need to stop doing this, you're stirring it up. You're gonna break. You're gonna draw him out because you keep going back into his world. Mm-hmm. And that's what he says. I got better things to dream about. So when Kincaid gets pulled in originally from Kristen, gets down into the boiler room, and they say, "Look, his you know the boiler room is cold. You know he's not here." And then yeah. Jason the dog bites her, and the next morning, which I didn't pull the line, I should have, but I would, I didn't pull the line was when she said, "What about the what about what happened?" And Kincaid goes, "What you pull my dog in your crazy ass dreams? He gets wild." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I fucking love Kincaid. I love Kincaid. And, and this was the movie, actually, because growing up, I knew Kincaid from this movie, not Dream Warriors. I, this is how I fell in love with Kincaid. I did, he take, he takes no shit. Yeah, but he says, you, you pull me into your crazy ass dreams, <laughs> my dog gets wild. Uh, but, like, I think, so my interpretation is, is that what that's what started to bring Freddy alive again, was that. And then when Kincaid gets pulled into the dream, he's in the graveyard in the dream, I guess. And that's where he's buried. And that's kind of what brings him back alive. Again, we're crossing like a lot of realms here because when yeah. Kincaid dies, he wakes up and he's in his bed. So it has yeah. to be a dream. It has to be a dream. But again, it's all very confusing. But my explanation of how he comes back alive is Chris, it's kind of Kristen's fault is what I'm saying. Like I'm blaming her because she keeps going back into his dream world and basically stirring him up again. The fear is stirring him up again. And that's what brings him back alive. That's the way I took it. I think your explanation makes the most sense. I just think the filmmakers didn't make it as clear as you're making. It. Not at all. You know, Not like at what all. they needed was a scene where everybody stop. Damon Martin, please come in. Explain what's going on. That like that's what that's what this movie needed. It's yeah. not that it's not in there, but you really have to dig for it. It's not quite, you know. It's I mean, not quite they try they way. try it with that one line when he says, "You keep coming yeah. back, you're going to stir him up." I think it's Joey actually that says that. He says, "You keep coming back, you're going to yeah. stir him up." So they kind of it's kind of a throwaway line. Yeah, it's, it's a little too buried, you know. Yeah, what I mean? like they needed to. They no needed, pun intended. There's a there's a version of this movie that goes a little deeper where you get like, and I know that in modern horror filmmaking this would never work, but you get like 25 minutes of her going in and out of the dream world because she's right, so terrified yeah. he's coming back, and then that he would finally, be the whole first act, and that's where you finally realize that like her going back is what stirred him up because she yeah. keeps going drawn back into the same world, she keeps revisiting scenes, and you could do a world where she sees Nancy and she sees you know the house, and you know she keeps revisit and she keeps like stirring up. It's just like. If you want something bad to happen, it's going to happen. You will it into existence. And there's a version where they do that, and it would be great. But, again, you're working within a time constraint and an audience that after 20 minutes of no one dying, they're going to be like, what the fuck? Where's Freddy, and why is he killing people? Uh, You know, before we uh, get into categories and all that stuff, we we should take some time to talk about the new Final Girl, right? I mean, we've talked about uh, Kristen at length, but the truth is she passes the torch in this movie to another girl and the girl takes over the movie. It's kind of rad. Like I, I, I want to see more movies try this, but let's talk about Alice played by the fantastic Lisa Wilcox. Um, your thoughts, Damon, since you are, you're truly the expert. Let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's start with you. So weirdly. Okay. So I, I, I've said on this show many, many times, you know, Heather Langenkamp is my all time favorite. I love her. She's my all time favorite final girl, just because I think she's the icon and everyone associates her most with Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Like that's when you think it's like, when you think of Halloween, you think of Jamie Lee Curtis, you think of Nightmare on Elm Street, you think of Heather Langenkamp. I love her. I adore her. That being said, Alice, Lisa Wilcox was my final girl. 
because movie. when part three ended, I didn't have that emotional attachment to Kristen. You know, I was I was back for Nancy. Nancy came back in part three. I was all right. on Nancy. I was Nancy. I was Nancy fan. It wasn't I disliked Kristen. I'm just saying, like, I was Nancy. And so when the fourth film started, Lisa Wilcox's Alice became my final girl. That's the one yeah. I love. So when I think of Nightmare on Elm Street, I think of two people. Well, three, obviously. Robert England being top of the two chain. I think of Heather Langenkamp and I think of Lisa Wilcox. Those yeah. are my final girls. Those are my Nightmare on Elm Street final girls. Now, it's not to say they haven't done others. And I'm not to say that they haven't, you know, introduced other characters that I've enjoyed or whatever. Those are the two. Lisa Wilcox and Heather Langenkamp are my final girls. Those are the Nightmare on Elm Street final girls. And to her credit... Alice is the only one who actually went up against Freddy twice and lived to tell about it. She actually survives part four and part five. She's the only one who does that because Nancy dies in part three. Kristen lives part three, dies in part four. Just saying. Um, so Lisa Wilcox's Alice really does become the the kind of, it, it's it's a weird one because you think of like, when you think of Laurie Strode and Halloween and how she becomes kind of like the face of Halloween along with Michael Myers because she is the original final girl of that franchise. And then you think about other great like, movies that carry on and like the weird way they've tried to carry on like Sally Hardesty and Texas Chainsaw, which is a hmm. long, long convoluted story of oh, how they tried to carry that episode. If you must. Yeah. And then we talked about Tommy Jarvis being one of the only final boys in, in horror history from Friday the 13th. But again, even him, he's not really, you know, he shows up, but it's not like he becomes like the central character. And I'm not saying that, Alice, I mean, Alice is essentially in two films, but she is the central character in those two films. Like, she becomes the central character. So, I love the passing of the torch in this film, particularly because, one, I was never a big Kristen fan, and two, when you lose Patricia Arquette, so you kind of lose that continuity, I love the fact that they handed it off to Alice. And also, real quick, one of the things I love most about the Alice character in this movie is that when you first meet her, she's meek. She's timid. She's not outgoing. She's an introvert. She's mousy. She is like the anti-hero. Like, Nancy in the original one is so strong-willed at the beginning. Like, you get a sense. Like, she's got some She's got some attitude to her. Like, she's willing to push back and kind of be her own, like, independent woman kind of in that role. Like, you see that right away in Nancy. Uh, part two, like, Kristen gains that power through Nancy. She realizes her power because Nancy helps her realize that power. Alice doesn't really have that. So when you meet Alice, she's this meek, timid, kind of mousy girl. By the end, she's an ass kicker. And I love that transformation in this film. Damon, she has a fantastic character arc. Like, it's so fucking good. Because, see, remember, the beginning of this movie, we're focused on Kristen and the Dream Warriors, right? They're friends at high school because they're back in the real world. They're no longer stuck in an asylum. Their friends at school are friends like Alice, friends like Debbie, friends like Sheila. You know, they, they have they have now they just have regular friends at school and you meet those friends. Alice, this is great. This is such a great thing. It's whoever whoever did this is great. And actually, I, I will give a quick credit to the writers, um, uh, Brian Hel Helgeland, Jim Wheat and Ken Wheat. They made her a daydreamer. Yeah. Like, and I don't mean this like, oh, like she's got a daydreamer power. No. She's a daydreamer, which a lot of little introverted kids are like. They kind of, they don't really participate in the world. They sort of dream about what they would do. And it happens multiple times during that, during that first act where you're setting up how Kristen and the Dream Warriors are going to die. You're meeting their friends from high school and Alice is this daydreamer, meek, like you said, mousy. 
not the coolest one, not the most forward. You know, Sheila's smart and sassy. Debbie's like buff. You know, she's like a workout fanatic and she's really forward thinking and she's already talking to this crush that Alice has. Meanwhile, Alice is just kind of like shrinking into her own background. You know, her brother's an outgoing kind of wild kid. Think of it like a young Robert Downey Jr. type. She's a daydreamer. Like, so she has this ability to go into her dreams and kind of be in this other place. And then just when you need it, it becomes convenient. And then you learn in a very quick, maybe a little too heavy handed of a, of a exposition. She explains that her mom, um, like taught her how to control her dreams. And you're like, oh, well that's really convenient for what we need right now. Yeah. Um, but you know, how is, how is she going to be an ally to Kristen? Well, guess what? Kristen is going to die fiery in a bed like fucking hardcore <laughs> so so the stakes go from like zero to 60 and it's like whoa okay uh my friends are dying at a clip and i just watched one burn to death in a bed and she gave me her powers in a dream uh i'm not really that girl but i guess i'm gonna have to be because we're dying at a very alarming rate here I love that. And by the end of the movie, you're right. She is a total ass kicker. She uses every single weapon, every single strength from every single friend that has died to take on Freddy. Wow. You put something on the page, you put something on the screen for me to see, and you pay every bit of it off. And I was taking notes. I was like, how's that going to pay off? How's that going to pay off? How's that going to pay off? It all paid off. It all mattered. It all came together. It all coalesces to build her from this mousy girl, this mousy little daydreamer who was fading into the background, to the only one who can literally destroy Freddy Krueger. Fantastic. It's kind of fun also because one of the things we talked about with part three, and again, I know we mentioned part three a lot, it's because these films are so closely related. Part three, they talked about when they made this film, they said, we can't keep having Freddy go up against one person. It needs to be a group. It needs to, because he's too powerful for any one person. So when they teamed it up, it was Nancy, it was Chris, and it was Kincaid, and eventually Joey. In that final showdown with Freddy, when they finally got, you know, in that final dream state, when they saved Joey, and, and they came together to help defeat him, and it was Kristen, and of course, Nancy dies. And then, you know, Kristen, Kincaid, and Joey are the survivors. It took all of them. What I love about this film is, is that even though the characters die, they pass along their powers to Alice. So you still get that same dynamic. Alice isn't fighting Freddy alone. She's fighting Freddy with all the fr- all the powers that her friends have given her. And it's the same thing. It's just done in a really creative, different way. Like, it's still a group. It's just all of them giving their powers to Alice. And that helps her kind of transform into the ass character, which by the way, I love a good montage, Patrick. I'm an all time <laughs> fan. Rocky montages, kid, karate kid. I'm all about montages. There's an awesome montage towards the end of this film where, where Lisa Wilcox's Alice gets her battle armor together. So to speak, cause she's taking, taking photos off her mirror and putting all the weapons together. She's tying the, she's tying her brother's bandana to her hand. She's putting on the spike necklaces. She ties her hair back into a ponytail. She puts on the wrestling shoes. She's got all this stuff. And then she looks at herself in the mirror. She looks like a total badass. And then right at the end, at the end of the big montage with the rock song and everything, she goes, fucking a it is so awesome <laughs> you know it's funny why i'm laughing while you're talking about it. i have this note that says i get the montage 
but it plays more like she's just getting dressed and taking all the shit off her dresser. It's awesome, like, though, because <laughs> it's like she's putting all the weapons on from her friends. I know, but it really like it, it is in a scene where it's like all my friends are dead and now I need to do something. It's like she's really just getting dressed. <laughs> but like, it's, it's an really awesome because on. she's taking elements of all of her friends. She's putting on the spike this, bracelet from Debbie. She's got the, yeah. the headband from Rick. She's oh, got it all the mean. Yeah, I get yeah. what's going on. It all means. Something. I love like, that. Don't get me wrong. I, I love the montage. And then at the end of it, <laughs> she, she looks because she transforms like in that moment, she turns into a total badass and she's like fucking a I'm like, yeah, yeah let's go. It was a very eighties montage and very appropriate i mean you're talking about 1988 1988 this is the height of like the karate kid and there's a lot of karate elements in this movie and stuff like that so yeah very appropriate for the time certainly yeah all right with that being said patrick let's get into our categories because we do have quite a few to get through tonight let's kick things off with best performance what better segue to get into best performance for this movie and talk about our best performance and again just to play spoiler here patrick i you know we always do try we we try to pick different people a lot of the time so we kind of give people a little different taste but i gotta be honest a lot of the categories we agree on and i just want to talk about those because they are amazing so spoiler alert we have the same best performance i really have a hard time believing it wouldn't be this person so go ahead I mean, we just talked about her and her awesome 80s montage. Lisa Wilcox as Alice kicking all types of ass. But like I said, starting out as not the kick ass. She starts one way and changes to another. I mean, classic hero's journey shit, but done to great effect. And it's also just, again, I can't reiterate this enough, how wild it is that this movie starts with one main character. The main character dies a significant time into the movie, like a half hour into the movie, that character dies and another character takes over and she pulled it off. Damon, that's like a miracle. Like, how does that even happen? Yeah, she is so, she's so strong in this movie and she does, because again, it's the character development. You know, it's the character development to go from that kind of mousy, you know, all the things we said early in the film, which kind of fades in the background. Of course, the the daydreaming sequence you talk about with Debbie and Dan, when she says, you are one major league hunk. Like, that's like the that's like the moment she's daydreaming about talking to this hunky guy that she's had a crush on. She's just too meek and timid to actually talk to him. Um, And then by the end, she's transformed into this heroine. She's transformed into the final girl. Like, it's it's great character development. And it's great on a performance level also because you might be able to play one you might be able to play the other playing both in one movie is not easy that transformation is not easy and lisa wilcox pulls it off with x i mean just expert precision the way she does it and beyond anything else i'll say about her performance patrick it's believable it's believable yes. she because you know as well as i do and this happens a lot in modern television and and in modern film they'll take some actress who looks like you know she's like a you know a model like full-on model like yeah. whatever and they try to dress her down to make yeah. her look meek and timid or whatever and then when she blossoms and you're like come on like who's not gonna recognize like you know who's not gonna see like this girl is like yeah come on this is like it's you know what i'm talking about like that oh the, i mean the, it's, it's a staple of the 80s to, yeah. to just to take a uh someone with model good looks and like put them in glasses and frizzy hair yeah that's kind of what they do suddenly they're not no one notices they don't notice now come on like that's yeah. so ridiculous what i love about lisa wilcox is that she does she does play the mouse she looks the part of the mousy girl then yeah. by the end when she plays the ass kicker i'm like hell yeah like she really pulls it off 
you know why it works? Because they didn't overdo it. Yeah. Then they, they could have. This was the perfect time to just just w- just overplay it and turn her from like. And by the way, Lisa Wilcox at the time was like an actual beauty queen. Yeah. You know, like she was, and they and they did dress her down, and they and they dyed her hair and made it drab and all that stuff, and uh, and they 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 did her makeup the right way to make her just kind of just seem plain ish. But she was truly in real life a beauty queen. Um, what they did right was they didn't try to flip her into like they didn't like change her hair yeah. and give her crazy makeup and all that stuff. It's just it exuded confidence. Again, why is this best performance? Because. Her, yes, her outfit changes a little bit. She 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 like ties her hair back a little bit. She's getting ready for battle, right? So she she and she's gaining confidence, and it she can show it on screen with her acting. That's that's why she gets the top spot, and it's not even a question. It's not even yeah. a debate. It's so strong because it's not oh, it's not so overt that it's just overpowering in the performance. Like she plays the meek, timid character, and then when she transforms into the ass kicker, it all works it's all blue because yeah. as you said one of the things you know like i said when you know as you mentioned lisa wilcox i mean she was on a soap opera she was a beauty queen like she was a gorgeous you know girl but not that looks have anything to do with it here but like the way that they made her kind of it was not the look as much as it was the performance yeah she played totally. the she played the timid mousy character at the beginning the one fading in the background the kind of you know whatever the, the, the not confident girl at the beginning and then the transformation by the end when she's basically battling freddy krueger on her own she has that confidence she has that ability and it's a total transformation from the start of the film to the end of the film the transformation from was from within yeah and 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 her acting exuded it it's absolutely it's killer it's killer work let's talk about favorite character in this film once again i would like to say we picked a different one but i will say for as long as i've watched nightmare on elm street this has been my favorite character beyond the final girls no shit i love well i think there's a reason why and i think you can probably figure it out um talk I'm about curious. your favorite yeah well go ahead and talk about your favorite character and i'll tell you why mine why why it's the same um i really liked rick who plays uh, alice's brother actually uh, and I described him a little bit a little bit ago as sort of like a young Robert Downey Jr. Like he's sort of, you know, happy go lucky. He's a, he's a karate kid, you know, and all this stuff. Um, but why I picked him this time more than anything was what I was talking about earlier, which is he actually serves a really great purpose to the movie. He he's he's his sister's best friend, I think, in in that respect. I think they're actually really close. He he's like he's there to give her a lots of moral support, lots of um Lots of the confidence that she will find later on comes from the, the the relationship she has with him. That's actually why I picked him this time, as opposed to, listen, if I want to just pick uh, characters that I absolutely fucking love, I would have just gone with Kincaid again. He <laughs> delivers double in this movie. He, he's even better than he was in Dream Warriors, in my opinion. So I could have just gone with characters I love. Yeah, I love Kincaid. But Rick, as a character, serves such a great function that I picked it this time. So for me, um, we always talk about, you know, uh, seeing yourself in a film. And we always talk about representation mattering so much in filmmaking. We talked about that a lot with movies like Master. And we've mentioned it a million times with films like Get Out, which are so culturally important to horror and, and representation in horror. And I'm not going that deep. But for me... Rick was the first Nightmare on Elm Street character of much as I love the franchise was the first character I identified with. He was kind of a little bit of the rock star character, 
martial arts, which is what I was obsessed with as a kid, which I'm still obsessed with to this day. I, you know, for those that don't know, if you don't follow me on Normal Life, I am a mixed martial arts journalist as my living. Uh, I follow martial arts. I've been a martial arts. I grew up on Karate Kid, Bloodsport. I love those films. That's what got me into it. And I've been a martial arts enthusiast my entire life. So him being kind of like the martial arts kid combined with like the bit of the rock star kid, he wasn't the um, the super popular jock like Dan, which was right. never me. I was I could never identify with that guy. I was kind of a bit of the outcast, a bit of the, you know, the, 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 I was into music. I played in bands in high school, things like that. So Rick was the one that was most like me. And so mm-hmm. I always identified. So through every Nightmare on Elm Street film in history, Rick is the one character I identified with the most. And also one of the deaths that bummed me out the most because I loved that character. And the other thing that he does that reminds me so much of me is like, I like, I'm a very outgoing person. Like I'm, I'm extroverted when I get in public, I have no problem speaking to people. I've spoken in public. None of that bothers me. Um, but what I'm not is I, 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 even though like I think of myself as a leader, I'm never the leading man, if that makes sense. I always consider myself kind of like the glue that holds my group together, that kind of thing. Like I'm the everyman. I'll help you here. I'll help you there. I'm not necessarily going to be the one like you know, leading the charge. I'll be the one kind of holding everyone together. That's kind of what Rick does in this movie. He's not the leading man, so to speak. But as you mentioned, he's kind of Alice's keeper. He's Kristen's boyfriend. He's Dan's friend. He's kind of like the glue that holds everybody together. He's kind of like the linchpin, so to speak, of this group. And that's kind of what I always identified myself with. So that's me. That's me finding myself in a movie was Rick. Rick was the, mo- the character I was most like, or let me be clear, most wanted to be like. Like he oh, was yeah, the sure. kind of like the, the kick-ass rock star kind of character. And that's the one I wanted to be like. So when you talk about representation in movies, I wanted to be Rick. Yeah, I mean, when I think about uh, guys I wanted to be like, I wanted to be like Dwayne from The Lost Boys, the long (laughs) black-haired vampire. I was like, yeah, I want to be like that guy. I think in reality, I was actually much closer to being like Rick. Uh, I was sort of um, not necessarily hyper, but just, you know, happy-go-lucky. I had a ton of friends. I was that kind of guy. But you're right. I wasn't the guy. I was just just very much like a Rick, a high-energy a uh, guy who 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 wanted everybody to feel good and i i like that about this character yeah i love rick i re- i love her and also another great montage scene him doing martial arts to anything <laughs> by drama rama i love that scene i love the workout scene another rocky-esque scene in this movie where he's doing the the, the uh, workout <laughs> I wouldn't call the quality of it Rocky-esque. Montages, they are. I didn't say it was quality. (laughs) I just said the martial arts workout was pretty cool. I love seeing that. Yeah, I've seen better montages than the movie than the one. This is a great movie and it does a lot of things really well. <laughs> These aren't my favorite '80s montages. Yeah, I personally love them because <laughs> I love a good 80, '80s montage, and I think these are two of my favorites. Um, <laughs> let's talk about best line uh, because we do have some best lines, best Freddy lines in this movie. Now, unlike part three, I didn't go through and dig out everything, and part of the reason I didn't is because, as you mentioned earlier, Patrick, is they give Freddy a lot more real estate in this movie, so he talks oh, yeah. a lot more in this film. So, yes. like, I didn't want to dig through because I'd be it would be a long... Let me not say it would be a long clip, but it would be much longer because Dream Warriors Ultimate is about a minute of dialogue, and I pulled pretty much everything he said in, in Dream yeah. Warriors, and it, it, it boiled down Dream to Warriors, about a minute. he's actually not in it as much as you think. Yeah, he's in it for about... Dialogue-wise, he's in it for about a minute. A minute and a half, right. I think, is what that clip was. This film, he actually gets a lot more screen time. So... Set up your favorite Freddy line. 
I really loved this line, and it's it's during the the final showdown between himself and Alice. Uh, earlier in the movie, they set this thing up. They're in the classroom, and you always take note of this. When you're in a classroom setting and the teacher is talking, they're usually revealing something to the plot, but the kids aren't paying attention to it. You're just hearing it in the background, and it will eventually fade away. The teacher in one of these was talking about dream masters and how dream masters work. Turns out... Freddy's a dream master himself. And maybe he was a dream master, you know, in real life. I doubt they, the people who created the, the franchise ever even thought this far ahead. But that teacher explains in that moment what a dream master is. And this line confirms that Freddy himself is a dream master, which makes it awesome because he's going up against Alice, who is becoming a dream master right before our very eyes. Real quick before we get to the club, what you mentioned, you know who that teacher was? Uh, school me. It was Robert Shea, the direct, the oh. producer, executive producer of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. That was He's his the one, cameo. That was his cameo. He was the gotcha. teacher. So, yeah, I read Robert. about his cameo being difficult because he, him and him and Rennie Harlan weren't necessarily talking every day. But yeah. Eventually, but, he strolled onto set and gave that speech. Great speech. Yeah, that was Robert Shea. So but this is not his speech. This is Freddie explaining that he is a dream master. Yeah, here we go. You think you've got what it takes. <laughs> I've been guarding my gate for a long time, bitch. And it wouldn't be Freddy without a little bitch at the end, yeah. for an exclamation point. Bitch is definitely his word of choice when it comes to curse words. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good line. I've been guarding my gate for a long time, bitch. Yeah, yeah. he's a dream master. I, he I, is. I realized that. I was like, I don't know if they intended this, because, again, it's one of those things like they almost bury it in the movie. But it's like they're they're explaining why Freddy can do what he does. He's a dream master. He can control the dream gates. Yeah, I liked it. I like that line a lot. Uh, so my favorite Freddy line, I admit, can combine with Kincaid, who is Hells, yes. one of my all-time favorite characters. And I love, even to the end, Kincaid is the ultimate badass. Even so in good. his final moments, Kincaid is sending a big F you to Freddy Krueger. So here's my, my favorite line. From Freddy and also involving Kincaid from Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. I love the delivery of both. I'll see you so in hell. Good. Tell him Freddy sent you. Uh. So damn good. I the the Kincaid death was like the most memorable thing from my childhood. Yeah, like him him dying in that in that junkyard and uh, yeah, I love that. See you in hell. Of course, of course, Kincaid would say that. He, yeah, Kincaid's never it. not gonna go out without saying some shit. I love the badassness of it all. You know what I mean? Like he yeah. was the one in part three. I mentioned the last episode where he's like. Come out, you burnt face pussy. <laughs> pussy. <laughs> like he was a total badass to the very end. Like even getting stabbed in the stomach by Freddy's glove. He yeah. wasn't going out like no punk. He's like, I'll see hell. you in hell. I'll see you in hell. And I loved, I loved Freddy's line. He's like, I'll, I'll tell him Freddy yeah. sent you. So good. I love it. That's gotta be, I just, that's, that's honestly is one of my favorite moments of any Nightmare on Elm Street franchise film. That, that moment right there is so badass. Cause again, Kincaid goes out like a badass and then Freddie delivers a great line. Tell him Freddie sent you. Um, let's talk about best kill because as you mentioned, this film got a much bigger budget. So they were able to amp up the effects, amp up the kills. Whereas 
why as much as i love the kills in part three again everyone remembers you know welcome to prime time bitch which was so cool and so creative freddie popping out of the tv i love that and will forever love that um they did have more room to work and more creativity to get uh with the kills because they had a bigger budget so what was your favorite kill in number on street four I do I do genuinely love again this movie finally took advantage of what you could do in a Freddy movie with kills and the best thing about these kills they are drawn out they are dramatic they are their own little tiny stories they are their own little story arcs my favorite kill and probably a lot of people's favorite kill is Debbie's kill when she becomes a cockroach and uh, and Freddy uh, squishes her in a roach motel but I mean talk about a storyline of a kill you know, she's starting by she's working out because she's trying to stay prepped and ready to battle Freddy on the on the on the dream plane. And she's lifting weights and Freddy shows up to spot her. Instead, what does he do? He snaps her arms in half and then these fucking d- grotesque like legs start growing out of him. And and then she gets stuck in the glue and it rips her face away to reveal a bug. And she's like screaming in agony. It's so gory, so nasty. And then him crunching her and turning her into green goo at the end i mean what a what a damn fine kill you can check in but you can't check out (laughs) Uh, you're kidding you knew the line i I, did know the line i can't believe that uh it is it is it is great and what one thing that i really like about this film and then they kind of ruin it in subsequent sequels is they really take advantage of this is a dream One thing we talked about that I liked about part one is there were moments when you would fade into the dream world and you wouldn't know whether you're dreaming or not. Kind of like the scene with Nancy where she talks to Glenn and she says, are you still awake? He pops out behind the tree. He's like, what? You realize at that moment she's actually asleep, but you don't know that at the moment. She looks like she's going to the jail to check on Rodel. And I like that. I like the way they played with that. So you never quite know. Are you in the dream or are you in reality? Now, they did that again a lot in part three. And just like when they're in the quiet room and they're doing the meeting and they're like, we're still here. And then when the thing pops on the little pendulum thing and it all goes in the air and they all realize they're actually asleep and in the dream world, this one, they take it to the next level because they actually have a budget to where they can make really ridiculous things happen. Like turning Debbie into a roach, which was set up early in the film when she pulls out a chip out of a bag and a bugs on there and she freaks out. She's scared to death of bugs. Guess what? Freddie knows she's scared to death of bugs and that's what he takes advantage of. He transforms her in that. And it is a really horrific scene to watch her transform into a bug. When she gets her face ripped off, it's pretty disgusting. Um, So disgusting. So that's good. Mine is different, but I also love, again, the complexity of it. Mine is actually uh, when you kind of, once again, aren't quite sure you're in the dream at first when they're all taking a test and Sheila and Alice are in the school and they're taking and then uh, uh, Sheila has blood drop out of her pen and then the bug, weird bug creature comes up and grabs her and scares her and then Freddy is the teacher and Freddy pulls off the apple and everything and then when he comes over right in Sheila's face... And he says, you want to suck face? And she says, no. And he just grabs her and literally sucks the life out of her. So good. I love that scene because it's so disturbing because you're so used to Freddy 
killing you with a glove, you know, t- chasing you with his glove, the, the razors, all those kind of things. That one was more disturbing because he literally kissed her and like sucked the life out of her. It was so disgusting. And there was a whole point of that movie of being Sheila was kind of like the virgin. She was the girl who like, it was more interested in school and learning the boys. You know what I mean? Like she wasn't really interested in that side of things. And so when he's like, you want to suck face? And she's like, no, and it's just so disturbing when he says that to her, like that line, I should have pulled it, but that line right there, when he says that, it's just like, Ooh, it, it sends chills down my spine uh and the the aftermath of her being um her the life sucked out of her and her face super disturbing it's the most uh, to me it's the most disturbing moment in the movie in the whole movie is seeing what sheila looks like after he's sucked her soul away yeah um yeah it's that's fucking that's a good call yeah it's again the characters have those similarities to dream warriors like you had uh, you had the kid who was like the Dungeons and Dragons geek in Dream Warriors, and yet Sheila was kind of like the science geek. She's like the you know the mousy you know science girl, and then to see her die so horrifically, it's kind of sad. She's like, oh man, like not Sheila, like she seemed yeah, like you, you know. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't like happy to see anybody die in this movie, and yeah. a lot of people go. Yeah. I mean, they kill a lot of people. Rick's death still sticks. That pisses me off still to this day when they killed him. And also, did you know Rick was originally going to die in a in a uh, really elaborate elevator scene? So uh, you know when Rick dies, he gets in. He's in the he's in the bathroom. He falls asleep on the toilet, and then suddenly he's in an elevator that's right. going down. And when he gets down to the bottom floor, he comes down to the dojo where he fights the Invisible Freddy. The original version was actually going to be an ele- really elaborate elevator scene. It was going to crash, and that's how he was going to die. But we talk about the budget. They didn't have the budget to create the super elaborate elevator explosion they wanted to do to kill him. So that's when they changed it to the dojo scene, which is actually a really famous scene because it plays in his martial arts scene from earlier in the film when he's practicing, and then he has like the martial arts moment with Freddy. Um, that wasn't in the original version of the film. Yeah, you know what? I loved everything up until they were in the dojo. Like yeah. I was, I was loving what was going on, and then like from there, like the the Rick death. I actually wrote that in my notes. I was like, this is the most disappointing death in the whole movie. Yeah, like it just it it's if it, I bet the elevator scene was amazing, and I bet it held up to everything that they were up to. And hey, sometimes you can't afford to pull it off. Yeah, I mean, I like I like that they allowed Rick to kind of have a badass moment with the whole martial arts thing, but the way it happened was just unsatisfying it's un- unceremonious yeah. compared to everything else in the movie yeah like you think if there's gonna be one guy who could actually put up a decent fight against freddie it'd be the guy who knows karate knows martial arts you know what i mean and like just had that i mean they gave him that moment kind of but then they just kind of take it away and uh yeah kind of anticlimactic moment honestly very um, and again yeah. we're also admitting this is our favorite character dying which again as i said probably one of my least favorite deaths in the entire franchise um totally agree Let's talk about best gore. And again, I'd love to sit here and disagree and say I had a different pick, but this scene is so freaking good. Yeah. I I even tried to find something else. I was like, let me, let me just like, debate if maybe there's a Debbie's two. was and good Debbie's was good like that was Debbie's good is, gore. Debbie's could have made my best gore, but I was like, let me make that my best kill because truth be told, uh, the gore of Freddy getting torn apart by the souls that are erupting from his body is incredible. It's, it's so, first of all, it's incredibly, incredibly gory. It's so gory. Like even just the hands pulling out and kind of hanging, like, 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 like pinning him against the wall. And then these spirits are undulating out of his body. And like, it's, it's, it's a lot to take in. And then those, those, all those arms that are coming out of him finally just pull his head in all different directions, just tear him to pieces. 
Uh, this is fucking rad. The hand popping out of the back of his skull and grabbing on to like the railing to hold him there has got to be one of my favorite moments because it's so disturbing. That little hand just popping out of his head and holding on to it. So head, Freddy's head's like bouncing because he can't yeah. move. So disturbing. Also a little bit of uh, trivia there for you. When all the souls are coming out of his body, there's one woman who comes out who's kind of mm-hmm. naked in that moment. And that's actually Lena Quigley, who has famously played trash in Return of the Living Dead. Damn that's right. her That's her number on Street cameo. She plays the naked woman a naked woman coming out of freddy's chest yeah that scene is disturbing and it has to be probably the greatest freddy death of any of the films like i again i make no bones about it number on street part three is definitely my favorite dream warriors is top three all-time favorite horror film for me because it's one of my most beloved horror films ever i love everything about that film that being said Part four has the more satisfying Freddy death and probably the best Freddy death of all. And I, again, I don't know how they could ever top it. Yeah. I, yeah. I'd be blown away if they did again, everything from this point on will be brand new to me. So it sucks. Cause it's like, Oh, it's only downhill from here, but man, what a, what a fantastic uh, feast of gore. It was to watch uh, Freddy get torn apart. It was so cool. When they pull his jaw down, he just gets ripped oh. apart. It's so so brutal it's so Love nasty it. uh did you want to talk so we kind of covered best kill did you want to talk about best dream or or is that going to go in line with I best mean, kill? If, if it's if it's 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 what's cool is in this movie they actually pretty much every dream is a kill yeah once you get into a dream someone's gonna die you nine times out of ten in this movie and uh my honorable mention was basically your best kill anyway which is sheila it's just a for all the reasons you just said i think most of these dreams in this in this movie are really good but the sheila one like really got me i do like i want to i want to give two honorable mentions real quick one thing just for the creativity i do like the scene when he's going after debbie and Alice and Dan keep recycling the same scene where she runs yeah. up. She's like, I'm driving. And then at one point, Dan goes, I feel like we've been here before. Yeah. <laughs> and they realize they're trapped in a loop in the dream. I do like that because that's a creative way to kind of keep them on the sidelines. I enjoyed that. Um, but again, much like, you know, the final dream sequence in Dream Warriors where all of them team up to fight Freddy. I love the final fight between Alice and Freddy. I love the like them jumping on top of the church pews and fighting each other. That whole yeah. scene is really cool. I just like it. Why church by the way why was it a church yeah uh because it's uh freddy's damnation i have no idea they just picked that <laughs> you tried though didn't you i, just, I was yeah. like why is this church yeah we just had some cool it could have been his like you know his lair his, his yeah. boiler room but um, i loved i loved that scene because i loved like it got again you saw every part of all the powers her friends gave to her the martial arts the insect killing weapon from sheila all those different things but I just loved it, like the creativity of actually getting like a real final battle. It felt very much like yeah. a video game. Like it felt like a video game brought to real life where they're actually fighting. It is 100% without question the most satisfying um, Freddy death that I've seen yet. There's no question. I, I've, overall, like the whole sequence and how it happens and all that stuff made so much more sense than anything I've seen up to this point as the as the Freddy neophyte. Um, I'll, real quick too, best dream... Uh, Shout out. I love Joey's death and, and it was his dream as well. Uh, just incredible execution. The waterbed thing was really well, well made. And when his mom pulls back the sheets and he's underneath the waterbed, I always so, thought that was really so cool. Good, man. Like, that was a cool just, kill. And I remember it from being a kid and being so disturbed because waterbeds were hot shit when I was. A oh, kid. yeah. And so I was like, God, this feels fucking real. Like I, it just I even watching it now, I couldn't see 
how they pulled the trick off. It was really well done. I love it because he's also got his eyes open, which is even creepier. Like yeah, he's staring up, like eyes wide open. Uh, all right, let's talk about best, best what the fuck moment. We teased this earlier, uh, which is Freddy coming back alive from Jason the dog, which I always liked that they named the dog Jason. I always thought that was a funny nice. little quick homage to, to Friday the 13th. Jason shoots a pee, a stream of fire across the graveyard and it erupts into an earthquake and opens up and Freddy is reborn. The fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> Flaming hot dog piss resurrects Freddy Krueger. Damon, what the fuck? Um, so in a movie that does so much right, I was like, why? Why on earth is flaming dog piss what <laughs> resurrects Freddy Krueger? So, me. you know how I did my whole, like, diatribe explaining to you about how Freddy came back to life by Kristen stirring up did, the forces? You did your damnedest, and it made, it made enough sense. Okay, I can't explain this one away in, in any way, shape, or form. Why a dog is pissing fire <laughs> to bring Freddy's grave open, I have zero idea. I, I really feel like this is one of those moments where they're sitting around the room and they're like, how are we going to do this? Like, how are we going to bring it back? Why not have a dog just piss across the ground? Because they had nothing. Like, I don't know why they had to have a device there. Like, maybe it's for this. Like, here we are all these years later and we're still talking about the dog <laughs> pissing fire. But I have to wonder, I have to imagine that they just didn't have a device. He was buried. How do we get him unburied? I don't know. I don't, How about a dog pissing on his grave? I don't like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have an explanation and I can't come up like for all my creative powers combined. I can't come up with a reason why this I is. I love, I love that. You can't explain this one away. It's, it, I, it makes no damn sense. It no. really, somebody, they had, a, they were coming up with ideas. They were brainstorming. They were like, how do we do it? What, what if lightning strikes the grave? No, Jason already did that. Uh, what if, uh, what if, uh, you know, I, I don't know, a car fell. It's a, how about just hot dog piss flaming yeah. hot dog piss and someone went okay yeah someone <laughs> thought that was a good idea flaming hot dog piss is the name of our band yeah i just don't i don't i'll never understand it i'll never justify it and i'll never attempt to justify it because it makes no sense it'll never make sense and uh i couldn't explain it if you gave me a day to come up with an idea why that was the final cut i don't know if i can <laughs> like there's a i could come up with a million other ideas to tell you how freddie got resurrected in that moment none of them would involve a, a dog pissing on the grave no that would never end up on my whiteboard list yeah so yeah that's again i i that's i don't know i don't i don't have an answer <laughs> for it but i really don't and with that, folks, yeah. <laughs> David literally can't explain that one away. Yeah, let's talk real quick before we get out of here about, you know, Number Elm Street, we mentioned, you know, getting a franchise right later than sooner. And what we're talking about with this category and kind of discussion here is how Number Elm Street got stronger. You know, yes. now, to be fair... Things fall, off weaker. A, things fall <laughs> off a cliff. Part five has its moments. I'm not going to lie. You haven't seen it yet. Part five has no. its moments. It's not good, but it's there's there are fleeting moments in that film where it's still good. Freddy's dead is an abomination. I can't excuse anything in that film. It's horrible. And again, the only film that that trumps is the Freddy, the never and Street remake, which is just utter, utter, like literally that is dog piss. Like that's what they collected. Literally the dog flaming piss. hot They dog turned pisses. it into the Nightmare and Street remake from 2010. <laughs> um, I can't excuse that, but we can argue. And I've said, I love the original. The original is a classic. I made no bones about it, but I've said 
numerous times. Part three is my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street film. And I would say there's an argument that I would say Nightmare 4 is my other favorite, not because I don't love part one, but because these two films are so closely together. They're they're so closely joined together. They feel like one movie. It's kind of like when you watch Star Wars. You watch Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. They're all part of the same story. You can watch them back to back to back. It all makes sense because they are all part of one story. Part three and part four really feel like that to me. Um, It's a rare instance where a franchise starts strong, Gets a little weaker. Part two is not great. And then part three is, again, as you mentioned, like either it's almost everybody's favorite or second favorite of the franchise, generally. And then part four is the other one. Like that's the other film that most people love. Generally, you don't get that. You don't get stronger as you get more films into the series. You don't. And, you know, I I wanted to make this a discussion about other franchises as well, but it it really came into focus after this uh podcast discussing this that why i think freddy got to me has peaked at this point it peaked at dream master because as the outsider i found dream warriors to be a little too cheap looking like it's just it just it doesn't hold up for me as the outsider because i don't have any nostalgia to tie to it why i think dream master is the peak for this franchise this franchise as a concept needed money but it never really had it. I mean, I think you could see it a little bit in Friday, uh, or, or excuse me, uh, Nightmare 2. Nightmare 2 has some bigger set pieces. It has some, it, it takes some bigger swings. It tries some things that uh, that are you know, pretty, you know, they, they sell pretty well um, because, because they were coming off the success of their first low budget one, which part one was good, but it was like, oh man, this is kind of light on Freddy. And it's, you know, it's, it, it, the potential's close, but it's not quite there. But a couple great deaths, a couple, couple great moments. They kind of saved up for those moments. Part three, they were dying on the vine. They admitted themselves that Freddy wasn't making the money they needed it to make. So here's one last shot. Here's a low-budget shot to try and pull it off. To me, as an outsider, Dream Warriors comes off as low-budget. It comes off pretty rough. Um, the kills in there are quick and kind of forgettable as an outsider. As When I watch them, I'm like, yeah, these aren't as exciting as I thought they would be. Part four, what did they do? They infused this franchise, which had big ideas inside of it, and released those ideas. They actually made those ideas come to fruition because they could afford to do it finally. It took success. It took a growing audience to make it financially viable enough to take this risk. And Damon, at least as of now, Dream Master is the most profitable outside of Freddy versus Jason of, a, of Freddy movies you'll ever get. So paying that extra attention to this concept paid off for them because they were like, this is our only one and only chance to like really sell the idea of a dream demon. What's that gonna really look like? Let's do it right. They did it right in this movie, not just in the effects, not just in the acting, not just in the in the set pieces and the scaling. Uh, in the story, they did it right. They did it right across the board. It's a weird balancing act because I obviously I disagree with you a lot on Dream Warriors because I think Dream Warriors is about as close as you get to a perfect horror film as you can get. I love that film and will always love that film. And I think the minimalism of some of the kills accentuated by the budget works because you still get some fun moments in there like the welcome to primetime bitch part four gets the budget and you get the really cool 
um, extended dream sequences like the Sheila death, like the Debbie death, you get the bigger fight scene at the end. The problem and my criticism of part four slightly, and this is coming from someone who loves this film. They started pushing the envelope so much with Freddy and some of the kills that in a way that's what also ruined it going forward because Freddy on a beach was a bit a bridge too far. Like that was a bit too much. Like Freddie coming out as a shark and then exploding on the beach. She's but it made sun- sense. She was trying to go to a happy place yeah, and he invaded the happy place, but, but then he immediately pushed her into yeah, the upside down. But again, you know, a little hokey with the whole, like, you know, putting not on sunglasses. Bad, not, I mean, and, not and, that bad. And then while I loved like the Sheila and I liked the Debbie death, her turning into a roach, that was peak. Like they, they started to push the envelope a little bit too much with that. And then they really went overboard in part five and part six. It just, they, they thought that's what everyone wanted and it got ridiculous and it wasn't good and it wasn't well done. So like as much as I love this film, it also kind of, it also, as much as I love the kills and I love everything that happens, I was also kind of like, Oh man, because this is the film that led into the really, like really ex- like, ex- mm. like, really accentuated the create the the overly like weird deaths and and trust me when you get when you get to part five and but you those get to are the death. other films those are the later films this film but again man, they do it great they do I, it great and again i think they, they do they do do it great for the most part but there are a couple that i have issues with but again i think that and i'm also looking at this as a whole franchise like i look at where the franchise yeah. went right and where it went, where it went wrong part four is in, incredible one of my favorite of the entire franchise but it also served as kind of a turning point to where they went straight on. Let's go for the most ridiculous over the top kills we can get. And, you know, really, really put our budget into those. And it got the story went out the door and everything kind of got stupid. That being said, everything outside of the shark Freddy, which is the one I really didn't care for. um, Everything else was, was great. And as we mentioned earlier, the, the franchise getting stronger, it's such a rarity because when you think about all, I mean, I know not, I know Friday the 13th part seven is your favorite Friday. But the I don't 13th. even think it's remotely the best one. I just know it's my favorite. Yeah. But like, so it's weird because like, I, and my favorite Friday the 13th is not the, the it's either part two or part four. Like those are my yeah. two favorites. And those I are love, great movies. And I love part, part one. Four, I love part one. The original, when I first yeah. saw it, you know, totally twist ending, didn't see it coming at the time. I really enjoyed part one. Um, th- but even with part four, like it's not that it got stronger. I just really like that film. And then, you know, things, obviously the train went off the fucking tracks after that, but with Friday the 13th, they really went off the tracks with that. But it is a rarity where a franchise does get stronger at this point. Cause you couldn't say that about, you can't, you can't, you and I as hardcore horror fans, we can sit here and say it about Friday the 13th, but the audience, the larger audience would probably agree that each film got progressively worse. Like they would not say that. I don't know because it's, but I think we're much more critical. I think, yeah. I think like audiences sometimes just don't give a shit. Like they're well, just yeah. like, cool. Want more things like most of them will be like, Oh, look when his head fell off. That was great. And you're like, Oh, that's so, you know, we did that a million times. Like some people just want it easy, fast and easy. Right. Well, yeah, so, they want their summer blockbuster. Yeah. They don't, they're not now, going the there hardcore for horror fans like us will have much more varying opinions. Yeah. You know, like I love part seven of Jason, the way you love dream warriors. The difference is I won't try to defend you that part seven is an amazing film. It has amazing moments as a whole, it's not great, but there are amazing moments in it. And for me, it's just sentimentally 
the best, which is, I can separate the two. I can go sentimentally, this is my favorite, but this other film over here in the Friday 13th franchise is far superior as a film. But in general, franchises don't typically do this to where we actually, we talked about the poll in the last episode. There's a lot of people who agree with me that part three is the best Nightmare on Elm Street. Part four is another all-time. Most, most of the poll, we never actually talked about the poll number. We did, but we most, did. The, but most of the poll was in the middle. They were like, oh, it's in my top three. The people who were like, oh, it, Dream Wars is the best was actually smaller, much smaller. It was smaller, but there are still people who consider yeah. it their favorite. It was like 60% saying. and then 30% said it was their favorite. Right, so but that's, that's still... A, oh, that's over, that's, no, no. Overwhelmingly, people thought it was in their top three, not their favorite. Right, but 30% is still a pretty big number when the majority of like casual audience would probably say Nightmare on Street oh, yeah, 1 is the I best. Oh, yeah, because I think there's a, a huge nostalgia factor that goes And so there. when I say with Dream Warriors and Dream Master that you get enough percentage an audience that loves those films like me personally when i think of nightmare on street for all the love i have for this franchise and if you can see the room behind me decorated with freddy and nightmare on Elm street stuff all over including my freddy glove and my dream warriors poster um i always when i mention friday when i mentioned nightmare on Elm street i always talk about part one part three and part four that's my holy grail now i love freddy versus jason we will eventually get there and i really like new nightmare new, new nightmare is really incredible film I'm excited to watch it but when i talk about my favorite nightmares it's always one three and four mm -hmm. it's harder to say that about other franchises typically well yes i do like friday the 13th part two and part four I, I I'm not I'm not overly enthusiastic about any of them that much because I've never been a giant Jason guy. I've never been a big Friday Thirteenth guy. Halloween, obviously, if you listen to the show, you know I have a, a huge like place in my heart for Halloween Three, Season of the Witch, which is of course the one film that doesn't involve Michael Myers. Um, part one is the icon that's the most famous, but then you get into part four, you've lost Laurie Strode, you've lost Jamie Lee Curtis, and I love Daniel Harris. I love what they did with those films, but. It, I love them, but I know they're not as good as the other films. Like, I know it's not as iconic as part one. And I love what they did in 2018 with the Halloween when they revamped the entire franchise and they gave it a whole new coat of paint yeah. and did a totally new thing with it. And then Halloween Kills came out. Let's not talk about that. Um, but it's a rare thing when you think about those 80s horror franchises. Like, typically, the films got a little bit yeah, less and less. Degrade. Yeah, yeah, they got less and less as more time passed. They didn't get better as time passed. Typically, you know what I mean? This like is, this is interesting. Let's 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 test this water, you know, down the line, because I, we we uh, we we reviewed two, three, and four of Friday the Thirteenth. We didn't review the first one, which is universally loved, and I believe it's kind of like hand in hand with um, Nightmare on Elm Street, the original. Universally, everybody seems to think the first one's a pretty damn good movie. We've reviewed the first four movies in both franchises at this point. I'm curious to see how much fall off happens after the first four movies for both of them. Cause now, I mean, obviously we're going to we're going to be focusing on Freddie right now, but I just want to keep it in the back of my head. Like how do we feel about five, six, seven, eight of, of nightmare on Elm street versus five, six, seven, and eight of, uh, of Friday the 13th and see how it goes. Maybe there is a pattern like, yeah, they just start to get schlockier. They just start to get more gimmicky any way you can do any way whatever you can do to keep audiences on the hook i'm curious to see how that's going to happen down the line i'm going to answer real quick for you now just to kind of give you a real quick thought i will say this part five and part six being dream child and then freddy's dead are not good um <laughs> when we review those you're gonna have a lot of fun with me on those because you'll hear me <laughs> You'll hear like the Freddy fan of me just be like, yeah, oh, 
<laughs> uh, but and, and again, part five has its moments. It's not sure. as bad, but it's not great. Sure. Part six is just completely off the rails. But to that credit, I will say New Nightmare turns things around. And then you and I have talked about this many times because this is the combination. Freddy versus Jason, you and I both love. We really enjoy yeah. that film. Yeah, no, no um, spoiler there. We've we've loved that one for a long, long time. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about it, actually. Yeah. It'll be fun. So I think Nightmare on Elm Street has the stronger case because part five, I'm not going to ruin anything of Friday the 13th, is the Damon, one the- <laughs> Damon, you're not going to poison my brain here with your opinions about your movies. We're going to have to go through them one by one. Do I need, to, I bring, will, do I need to bring up Jason Goes to Manhattan? Do I need to bring it up? How about I, this? Jason X is a pile of donkey shit. <laughs> Trust Jason, me. Like, Jason I, Goes to Hell. Yeah, but here's the thing. Those movies are not good. <laughs> But the kills are, and let's be honest, if Fred, if Freddy is about story more than kills, it, ex- it excels. Jason's always about kills. Yeah. So I can, I can, I could just fluff aside the movie and go, yeah, the movie sucks. How are the kills? That's how I'm going to rate everything after part four of Jason is how are the kills? Cause I know the movies, they don't even have a plot. Those movies don't have plots. So it's like there's no point in going. Well, the plots are the plots are all garbage. They're just excuses to find dead let bodies. Let me just let me just throw this out there before we get to our last category and get out of here. We're already going long here. Let me just throw this out there. In one of the next two films of Freddy Krueger, one of them, I'm not gonna tell you which one, one of them turns Freddy into the Wicked Witch from The Wizard of Oz. Ooh, that's exciting. No, it's not. That's it's exciting. not at all. Wait, Damon. No, can't you can't. When you bring the, when we talk about it, you'll just see the disgust and sadness on my I face. I can't wait to talk. About it. It's <laughs> you're gonna be uh, these. You will lord these last two films over my head for a while because because <laughs> you know I have like I have like you know Jason takes Manhattan, Jason X, Jason goes to hell. They're all like literally etched into my brain. I know those movies inside and out, so yeah. I am gonna be comparing them along the way. <laughs> Those are the films where we're kind of both going to be like, you know, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough to be a Nightmare on Elm Street fan, or it's tough to be a Friday the Thirteenth fan at these moments. The, the later on, the, the later in the series, the harder it gets to justify these things. Yeah, but again, thankfully they do turn it around with uh, with New Nightmare and with Freddy versus Jason. Yeah, and they I'm excited to see a couple of things down the line. We'll they see lose it. They goes. lose it all again when they get to the remake. But that's a whole other story for another day. For now, we'll close on this last category, which is is it scary? So at the end of the day, Patrick, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Four, is it scary? The Dream Master is scary, you know, and and does it now? Did it terrify me? Did it shake me in my bones while I was watching it? No, but what I'm seeing on screen is terrifying. It qualifies as horror, and uh, I think if I showed it to my kids, they would be absolutely screaming, terrified every single night of their lives. Like I'd really fuck them up if I showed them this movie. It's it is it it ticks all the boxes for what you need for a scary movie. This is 100% yes. It's scary, yes. I think the way it crosses over, because I talk about, like, when we judge, is it scary? I like to cross boundaries between, like, it doesn't have to be one of those, like, spine-tangling movies where I'm afraid to turn off the light at night. What this film achieves better than almost any Nightmare on Elm Street for film in the entire franchise, it's so disgustingly gross. And I mean that in a great way. Yes. When Freddy picks off the meatball from the pizza 
and bites into it and says, oh, Rick, you little meatball. And he bites into it and the juices, oh, oh, it's so gross and so disgusting. And then we talked about the bug, you know, squashing the bug and the juice. It's the the, the, the hands coming out of the head. death. So disturbing. Yeah. Like it's just, it's disturbing and gross. Like it's a different kind of scary, but it's definitely scary. Um, yeah. it's just I mean, not they, like, you're not going to be jumping and you're not going to be like, you know, I'm afraid to turn off the lights at night. It's just going to be like, things will, things will stick with you in this movie. Yes. And they have like, like Joey's death has stuck with me since I was a kid. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's, it's Joey and Sheila's deaths will stick with you. Yeah. Like that's, that's good shit. And fucking Kristen burns in her fucking bed. <laughs> yeah, getting tossed in the lake of fire is, is yeah. a pretty gnarly, gnarly way to it, die. What? Like when they both bust open the door and she's like literally just a body in a flaming bed, you're like, that's fucked up. <laughs> they gave, they definitely gave her the way out. Uh, <laughs> all right, folks, that is our episode on Nightmare on Elm Street part four, the dream master. Of course, we'll be back with our next episode, Nightmare on Elm Street part five. <sighs> the dream child um looking forward to it um i'm not i am but i'm not actually i am because of I you are. this is your series though. i Come haven't on. watched the dream child in many years i'll be honest i've seen it numerous times but part five and part six are the films of this franchise i've seen the least well besides the remake i've seen the remake like twice and i'm really not looking forward to that but yeah so Maybe my my opinion will change. I don't think so, but you know, you know, I'm coming in completely cold. I'm going to be very objective. I I really will because I, I I watching this movie actually and and putting on my critical eye. Uh, I'm excited to actually pick apart the other movies from a critical standpoint too. Maybe I will be like, no, there's actually a lot in here to enjoy. In a weird way, I'm actually excited to review those because. While I am, I'm watching all these films. The like we talked about part two. There were parts of part two that I actually liked better rewatching like it, it now, now because I, I disliked I it a lot growing up. Like I really yeah. didn't like part two, part one, part three, and part four. Are always my holy grail. Now I admit I come at those films with a slightly different perspective because they are some of my all time favorite horror films. So it's harder for me to judge them as harshly as maybe I would as a first time viewer. And you show it to somebody today, there might be a harsher, you know, criticism of that mm-hmm. part five and part six are where I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be easy on those films because I know my opinion going in is not great. Maybe I'll turn it around a little bit, but I know I remember enough about both those films to know between now and then watching them again, I'm not going to turn around and be like, you know what? Freddy's dead is actually a pretty good. No, not going to happen, <laughs> but maybe I'll find some things I like about it. Uh, that you being said, know. we're going to get out of here. Uh, appreciate everyone tuning into our entire number on street franchise. We'll continue of course with part five, the dream child, uh, in a future episode. So stay tuned for that. Want to say a big thank you to everyone that tunes in each and every week to the show. If you have questions, comments, moves you like, movies you'd like us to review, uh, please hit us up on email. You can find us at rotlivingdead at gmail.com. That's rot livingdead at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Damon Martin, and you are at Director Patrick. And a big thank you to everyone that tunes in each and every week to the show. Find us on all of your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and of course over on my website, nerdcoremovement.com. We will see you next week for another edition of Rewind of the Living Dead. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then. Peace, bitch. <laughs> <laughs>